The writer of Hebrews is dealing with some of the things we'll be dealing with in a few moments there in, in our reading. As he talks about those who had seen all these great things and those who had seen the work of the Lord and, and been recipients of his mercy and grace and got out into the wilderness and said, oh, he just brought us out here to die. And, and just think of all the, the onions and garlic that we ate back in uh, Egypt. They were lovers of garlic, obviously, because you can't make anything without garlic, right? You cooks know that. You can have a garlic. And then they got out there in the wilderness and said, oh, the Lord just brought us out here to die. And, and they forgot about his mighty works. They forgot about his graciousness. They forgot about the fact that he keeps his word and their freedom was evidence of that. So they began to complain. They began to fall into disbelief. And they were judged because of that. We think of the wonderful things the Lord has done in our lives. He bring us out of bondage. Well, there was that sin that held us so tightly. That sin that held us and knew our name and bound us to the things that were displeasing to God. He has freed us from that. So we, like them, have been given our freedom we have been pulled out of bondage and how do we respond to the lord pray today that we will respond with gratitude and not whining complaining so let's pray Lord, we have so much to thank you for. We who are so undeserving of your grace, and yet you have given it to us. You have released us from the chains of sin that have held us. Sin no longer reigns in our lives. You have given us this freedom and and given us this freedom so that we might live in obedience to you. So that we might put aside the old ways of our lives the old desires of our hearts, and really focus upon you and and what you call us to do and what you provide for us. Really, Lord, if we whine and complain, it's because we really just don't understand you. We haven't looked into your word to see your faithfulness and to see your character and how you keep your promises. So often it's we want things on our timetable and we want things when we want them instead of being patient and waiting on your hand being patient and waiting for you to reveal yourself to us in the direction we should go. Lord, whenever we would tend towards complaining or whining, help us remember these things, that you are faithful, that you are always there. Even when we don't sense you, even when we have wandered off, you are there because we can never be taken from your hand because once we belong to you through the work and blood of your son Jesus the Christ we can never be taken away fix this in our hearts Lord so even in our worst times even in the times when life seems to pile up upon us or in the things especially Lord that we don't understand what it is that you're doing with us 
or what it is you're doing with the people around us, the ones that we love and care for. Remind us that you are in control. Remind us that you are ordering this world for your purposes. And if we belong to you, then these things are for our good, even though we may not understand them, even though we may not define them as good, yet they will be revealed to us in time as part of your plan for us. Lord, we have seen you work in the lives of people this week in their healing and sustaining through surgeries, etc. We pray, um, Susie, pray for Chris, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen them, speed healing to their bodies. Lord, we know that other families are, are in grief and, and sorrow this week. We pray for the, your mercy upon them as they struggle through. Lord, grant them your care. Perhaps, Lord, we should say grant them that their eyes would be fixed upon your care. For your mercies are ready for us, ready to be bestowed. Lord, and for others who may come today, whatever the week has laid upon them, that they would be mindful of even in the stresses of your grace and mercy of your care, and that you have drawn them here, that they may hear the things of Christ, that they may look to you, that you are their comforter and care and sustainer. Lord, this is possible only through the work of Christ. So we come to you in his name and pray the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is a privilege to come and worship the Lord in a variety of ways. And part of that is giving of what he has blessed us with. So I invite the ushers to come forward at this time.
mindful of the sacrifice as much as we can of you sending your son for us who was without sin yet took upon himself all of ours that we might know his forgiveness that we might know his righteousness lord we pray that these offerings would be used for the furthering of your kingdom for the proclamation of jesus christ that others might know of this forgiveness that others might know the precious blood of Jesus Christ, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. my sin. 
Let's open this morning to the book of Jude. And today we'll be in verse 5, but we'll read the first five verses. This morning. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we go to God's Word? Lord, in your mercy, you have brought us here today that we might hear your Word, that we might read it with our own eyes and dig into it and see your faithfulness. We ask that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us, that our eyes and hearts would be open and receptive to what you have for us today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, the letter of Jude, the first five verses. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, if we were to go a little bit further, verses 5, 6, and 7 really serve as one unit to three illustrations of one point. There's one point that those who know the things of Christ and then uh, know them in an intellectual sense, not are truly saved, but have every opportunity to see the Lord at work and to experience those things, once they have seen those things and heard those things and turned their back in disobedience, the Lord brings destruction and judgment upon them. So there are three illustrations here of the same point. Now, in a perfect world, we would spend 90 minutes uh, studying these three items. But frankly, I'm, I'm just not that interesting. Okay, so for 90 minutes, we just can't have that, uh, and, and uh, I dare not make the Word of God boring, so we're going to do just one, and next week we'll do another, and the next week we'll do another. Okay, so in three sections instead of one, but they all serve the same illustration, but they address three distinct groups. The chosen people of God. Okay, now you would think that the chosen people of God, their salvation would be secure, but not everybody who is Jewish, not everybody who is Israel is really Israel. And we'll see that. Paul mentions that in Romans in particular. And then there is this group of angels, 
that Jude mentions. And then there is a group basically just of everybody else or Gentiles that he mentions. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. But he's going to give examples of God's judgment upon them. Now, uh, let's go, let's take a break for just a second and remind ourselves, judgment is not popular, okay? Who wants to talk about the judgment of God, really? I mean, how many of you spend your devotional time focused upon God's judgment and God's destruction of those who do not belong to him, those who are not saved? I don't, okay, frankly. I don't want to spend my time thinking about that, but that is a reality. And it was such an issue here for Jude that he has to talk about it. He says, I have to remind you of these things. Now, he just kind of glosses over them, but these are really very large and important points because they are historic points in the life of the people of God. And the people that he is writing to would know these things. That's why he only has to touch on them. That's why he only has to mention them and to bring them up lest they forget. Because we have a tendency towards forgetfulness of the things that the Lord has done. From our reading in Hebrews, and we'll read some more there, we see that the people of the Old Testament had a real tendency to forget God's faithfulness and his mercy towards them. So here you have three historic accounts dealing with apostasy. And it demonstrates how God reacts to this no matter who it is, whether it's Israel, the chosen people, whether angels, or whether Gentiles. So let's take a moment, and I'm going to review the definition of apostasy for us. And there are four items that go into this definition. Apostasy is not merely indifference to the Word of God. It involves an intellectual acceptance of the Word of God. Okay? It's not merely indifference, it involves an intellectual acceptance of the Scripture, number one. Number two, apostasy is not to be confused with error. Okay? Apostasy is not necessarily believing bad doctrine or false doctrine. An apostate can actually hold certain good doctrinal views, but still be an apostate. In the same way that a real believer, a true Christian, can hold views which are in error. Okay? Well, they can hold views which are in error because of either insufficient understanding of Scripture, uh, they've been taught wrong all their lives in some fashion because they're within a group that teaches bad doctrine or something like that, but their hearts can actually be changed by the grace of Christ. So number three, apostates have received light, but not life. They have received light, but not life. They have known and accepted intellectually the written word, but they have never met Jesus Christ. Their hearts have not been changed. Their lives have not been changed by his grace and his mercy, by his living word. And number four, apostasy is a deliberate rejection of the truth after it is known. A deliberate rejection of the truth after it is known here in your head. It is, therefore, basically the worst of all sins. Because you've heard the truth, and you've heard it again and again and again, and you turn your back on it, okay, and walked away from it or embraced something else. The writer of Hebrews says, Of how much worse punishment do you think shall be deserved by one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Okay, That is, there is only one way of salvation. There is only 
one way of having your sins cleansed from you. And if you have heard that message more than once, let's say you've sat in church all your life and you've heard it 5,000 times and say, yeah, yeah, that's true, but you never believe it within your heart. The writer of Hebrews is saying, how much worse will your time in hell be than if you had never heard the gospel before? And we'll look at that in just a moment. Now, in 2 Peter, the second chapter, you have a very similar text to what Jude is saying here, and almost word for word, uh, because remember, Peter is saying, these guys are coming, and Jude says, these guys are here now. And he's, the warnings are very clear. Okay? It, there is a hell. It is forever. It is a place of terrible punishment that will go on for all eternity. And better that you never heard the gospel than have heard the gospel and be in hell. I mean, just think, if we could even get our minds around this. Here you are, you find yourself in hell. And your mind is running the tape of your memories and every time the punishment hits you so to speak in the face you are reminded of the day that you sat in church and heard the gospel and did not respond or you are reminded of the day that loving friend took you to lunch for the umpteenth time and tried to declare to you the things of the gospel and you said I really don't want to hear those anymore and there you are facing all eternity with that tape running in your head again and again seeing the times that you could have received Christ as your Lord and Savior but did not. Now, all who do not receive Christ as their Lord and Savior will go to hell. That's just what Scripture says. How much more terrible will it be to remember all those times that you could have confessed faith? So Jude is saying to us here, I desire to remind you, though you know this very well. He says, I'm just going to bring this back up to your memory. And the first illustration that he uses in verse 5, is probably the most familiar of all stories to Jewish men and women and children in the first century. It was the one that was replayed most often, uh, mostly because they celebrated it every year, called the Passover. This was the time where the Lord delivered them out of Egypt. And after saving his people, he then destroyed a segment of those who rebelled against him. Now understand that. He goes through all of these, you know, the ten plagues and all that, and he brings them out and he crosses the, you know, parts of the Red Sea, sustains them through the desert, and then he destroys some of those very people that he saved out of bondage because they turned their backs on him, because they did not believe, because they saw the work of the Lord right in front of them and then complained Can't we go back to slavery? I mean, at least we had onions and garlic back in Egypt. Out here, all we get is this, what? This manna which falls from heaven every day so that we can eat and be sustained by it. Now, where does that manna come from? It comes from the Lord. But they would rather have the onions and garlic that their masters gave to them back in Egypt. So let me give you the short version of their time in Egypt. Now, most of us will remember this from Sunday school or watching the Ten Commandments on Charlton Heston, whatever it is. For more than 400 years, the Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. They lived in a land called Goshen, and God raised up Moses in Pharaoh's own household. And we looked at that several, several months ago, how, how God used that 
in his providence, raising him up within his Pharaoh's own household and brought him to prominence. Moses had to flee to Midian after he killed a, an Egyptian that was uh, uh, punishing or, or beating uh, a Hebrew. And it was in that time that the Lord began to shape him and mold him. And Moses would cry out, how long, Lord, are you going to leave your people in bondage and in slavery? And, um, uh, you know, this is our prayer so often, isn't it? Lord, when are you going to fix this? And the Lord says, Moses, come up here on the mountain. I want to have a talk with you. So he goes up, and there's the burning bush. And he says, take your, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to go and fix it. And Moses is full of excuses. There are four or five excuses that Moses used. And, and, and God has an answer, of course, for every one of them. And Moses is sent back. And he is the one who leaves his people out of the bondage. And through a series of ten plagues that take place, and finally, the last plague is the death of the firstborn. And the only way to avoid the death of your firstborn male, now I, I, I always do this because I'm not a firstborn male. How many of you are firstborn males? Okay. Oh, you would have been in big trouble. Okay. If, uh, because later in Israel's history, they fall into the worship of Baal and they go back and sacrifice their firstborn males just in the way that pagans did. And the Lord has a... Uh, he's not happy about that, we'll say that. So here's the last plague. And remember, each plague that struck Egypt was aimed at their deity, was aimed at ten deities in particular, okay? Everywhere from the Nile to all the other things, the sky, etc., and ends with the death of Pharaoh's firstborn because they thought Pharaoh was one of the gods, okay? So the only way to make your household be safe, was to sacrifice a lamb and to put its blood on the doorpost and on the lentil. And as the angel of death did what? Passed over that household. You sat inside and you shared the Passover meal. So this was, everybody who is reading uh, Jude's or hearing Jude's words understood these things. So an entire nation of people were held safe by simply having the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And we see this image and the work of the blood of the lamb carried right through to the death of Christ. Now, the Lord comes. He brings them out of slavery, out of bondage. He comes and saves them. He leads them out into the desert and then he becomes the judge or the destroyer upon them in, the, in their disobedience. The first time he comes to save, so to speak, the next time he comes to judge. Does that sound like anybody we know in the New Testament? Jesus says, I come to save. Next time, he'll come to judge. He will be the judge. Now let's turn back to Numbers 14. Numbers chapter 14. And this is the time that, that Judas is speaking about, in particular, in verse 5. <coughs> Numbers 14, and uh, let's start at verse 13. And this is, this is a time of judgment upon the people because of their disobedience, and we'll, we'll explore that in just a second. 
But Moses said to the Lord, well, well go, let's, let's go back to verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe me, in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater, greater and mightier than they. Now, hear the offer that Moses gets. I mean, here are all these stupid people that he has communicated the things to the Lord to, and they've turned their back on him, and the Lord says, Moses, I'll come and make a mighty nation out of you. So Moses has a real chance to be proudful and say, I'm the only one that's got it together, Lord. I think you're right. You ought to make it out of me. Or he could say, but Lord, think of the humanity. If you come and destroy all these people, a million, five, two million people, however many were there, if you destroy these people, that's, that's just carnage. Moses doesn't choose either of those two options, so to speak. Verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by thy strength thou didst bring out this people from their midst. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that thou, O Lord, art in the midst of the people, for thou, O Lord, art seen eye to eye, while thy cloud stands over them, and thou dost go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if thus dost slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of thy fame will say, because the Lord could not bring his people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Moses' concern is for God's glory here. It's not about his own pride. He's, he's not really that concerned, it doesn't appear, about the people. He is concerned that, Lord, if you turn on these people and destroy them, the other nations will mock you. It's about God's glory here for Moses. Lord, you have done this powerful work and you have brought these people out. Now if you destroy them, the other nations, this is my translation, the other nations are going to think poorly of you. They're really not going to think that you're the only true God, that you have all the power and all the authority. Moses is concerned about the Lord's glory. This is really a radical God-centered view. That Moses has. Well, go down to verse uh, 20 of that chapter. So the Lord said, I've pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, have not listened to my voice. Now if we go back and, and begin with the Exodus, we will find ten times that the people that the Lord brought out of Egypt have tested him. Just like the ten plagues that freed them, they put the Lord to the test ten times. And I'm just going to list them. We won't go through and look at them each. But there's the time at the Red Sea, at Marah, at the wilderness of Sin, at Rephidim, at Horeb, uh, Tabera, the complaining of, of, of uh, Numbers chapter 11, at Kadesh, and twice with the manna where they put the Lord to the test. And here he is, he's doing all these great things for the people, and they're complaining, and they're whining, and they say, Lord, you really can't do this stuff. And he does it again and again and again. So God's counting ten times that they have not listened, ten times they have tested them. 
Therefore you shall by no means see the land which I swore to your fathers, nor shall any of those who have spurned me see it. Now what was the event that triggered this? And and, and we know it. They come up to the promised land, and they send in the spies. All the spies come back, and... Jacob, no, no, Caleb and Joshua are the only two who say, let's go get them. All the rest of the spies say it's a land filled with giants and there's no way we're going to overcome these people. And Joshua and Caleb say, come on, the Lord has promised it to us. Let's go in and take it. And the people sided with the other spies against Joshua and Caleb. So the Lord says, he brings them, as I live, this is what I'm going to do. To you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number. Everybody over 20 years of age is not going in the promised land. You will fall in the desert. Now, if you go back and do some of this math and look up in in particular verses, all the men who are over 20 at this time, according to Numbers chapter 1, numbered 603,550. If we take an equal number of women who are over 20, that leads us to about 1.2 million people over the age of 20. So if we check Deuteronomy chapter 2, that means that there's going to be an average of 90 deaths per day over the 40 years to clean out that generation that did not believe. Everybody under 20 was going to see the promised land. Everybody over 20 was going to die in the wilderness. Now, do you think everybody over 20 was disobedient? I don't think so. But there was enough disobedience that the Lord's judgment came upon them. So in, this, in some sense, we look at the New Testament, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. There are times when the just will suffer because of the unfaithfulness of the unjust, of the disobedient. And that is one of the issues that we have here. Well, what is the point of this? The point is that people were given spiritual opportunity. They were called to believe the truth about God, to trust God, to put their faith in God, and and they knew knew in here enough to do that, but they denied it, and they are judged accordingly. God gave them that opportunity. It will be the same God who destroys them. And this illustration makes it clear that Jude is describing people who are outwardly identified with the people of God, who professed a knowledge of God, who had some kind of understanding of God, who showed some interest in Him, but abandoned the Lord, abandoned their trust in the Lord, abandoned a purely intellectual understanding of God, and were therefore destroyed rather than ever entering a place of blessedness. These people were never saved. They had the outward appearance. They mouthed the words. But when the tough times came, they doubted God. They turned their backs on God. They sought pagan gods. Now, this is a warning to apostates, to people of today, to those who come all the way to the edge of truth, who see it, understand it intellectually, and experience the things of God in the life of those around them. But do not believe God. God's judgment on Israel, as an example, is a model for his judgments on the apostates in the visible church. God subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, destroyed those who did not believe. That particular word 
is not a one-time destruction. Okay? It is not saying he destroyed them and they ceased to exist. This type of destruction that the scripture talks about is an ongoing eternal destruction. Uh, Isaiah talks about the worm that never dies. This is what goes on in judgment and in hell. There is no end to it. We think of eternal life and how wonderful it will be. And, and we don't fully understand it, but the Lord has promised it to us for those who are in Christ and the blessedness of heaven. The flip side of those is those who are not in Christ will experience eternal life in the form of punishment and judgment. Do we who are saved deserve that same punishment? Yes, we do. But it is God's grace that saves us from it. Like It came to get my mind around what it would be like to face that day in and day out for all eternity. 10,000 years and still forever. Whether it would be the blessedness of heaven or the judgment of the Lord. Hebrews is filled with the same types of warnings. Let's turn over to Hebrews uh, chapter 10. And, and that's the only one we'll look at. There's, there are warnings in chapter 3, chapter 2, chapter 6. There's a couple different warnings in Hebrews chapter 10. And the author of Hebrews is referring to those who hear it all, who see it all, but don't believe it. They have every opportunity to believe, but they don't. And he says, in, in Randy's translation, but they're toast. Okay? They're done for all eternity. Because they will not embrace Christ. There is no stronger warning in Scripture that if you are only a member of what we call the visible church, that does not guarantee eternity in heaven for you now we, we touched on this in sunday school we've touched on it in the past couple of weeks but remember the visible church was a term that came in about the fourth century and it refers to the number of people who are on the rolls or who attend a church okay that's the visible church the people we can see with our eyes then there is another group called the invisible church the invisible church are the real believers, those whose hearts have been changed. Why do we call them invisible? Because we don't know who they are. Only Christ knows who they are. Might they be everybody in a church? I guess that's potential, and that's a possibility. But remember, in the Gospels, in several places, Jesus tells a parable of the wheat and the tares. A farmer goes out, he sows a field of wheat... At that night, his enemy comes and sows weeds or tares within that same field. They grow up together. They look exactly alike. And so they're told, don't pull out the weeds because you can't tell the difference. In fact, you can't only not tell the difference, but the weeds in their root system of that particular weed that he is referring to intertwines with the root system of the wheat. So to pull out a tear, if you could find one, you would probably be pulling out wheat as well because the root system would come out. So Westminster Confession talks about the um, invisible church, the Catholic, small c, the Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now Romans, as I mentioned earlier, Romans chapter 2, Paul says, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly. Okay, It's not enough just to have the look. You have to have the changed heart. 
There's a great difference between the visible and the invisible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Let's go there. The author of Hebrews says, For if we go on sinning willfully, the sin in view here is the sin of unbelief. That's the sin here that he's talking about. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He is not saying, okay, here's Randy, and he's professed faith in Jesus Christ, and he has become a true believer and saved. Now, if I would continue to sin, he is not saying, well, you're going to lose your salvation. Because if you're truly saved, you're saved by the Lord, by his effort. You can never be taken from his hand, so you can't lose that. What he's talking about here are those who continue in their sin of unbelief when they have heard it, when they have seen it, but they refuse to acknowledge the truth. By their unbelief, they turn away from the Lord. If you go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, if you don't believe the sacrifice of Christ saves you, there is no other means of salvation. So you are forever lost, forever lost. But a certain terrifying, verse 27, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of God? Of grace. See, this passage is a warning for those who've made a profession of faith, who have associated themselves with the church. They are in danger of eternal judgment if their hearts are not changed by Christ. These people outwardly seem to be Christians, but they are not truly so because they turn their back on the things of Christ. And as I mentioned before, how much worse would it be? For all eternity to be in hell and then to think, have that tape running through your mind of all the times your friends pleaded with you to come to Christ. Of all the times you heard the truth but turned your back and walked away. There's one thing to be ignorant of the truth and face judgment. There's another thing to have been exposed to the truth time and time again and to have turned your back on it and not believed it. The things of Christ are true, and there is salvation for those who are in Christ, and there is eternal punishment for those who are outside of Christ. And Jude says, the danger is that you'll hear it, and you'll see it, but you won't believe it. You'll go, well, that's neat. Or you'll forget the great mercies of God that you have seen or seen in the lives of those around you, that you won't pursue the things of Christ, that you won't cling to the things of Christ, that you'll hold out hope that there might be salvation in another fashion. There is none. So my friends today, like Jude says, don't put your trust in anything else than Christ. Don't be one of those people who sits there and hears the gospel and, and goes, yes, yes, I think that's good. Oh, that, that was really good. But your heart is never changed. You must confess your sin, receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. So let's pray.
Lord, there is a danger, from, as we see from your word, for simply hearing the gospel and not believing it. For having in our minds, accepting it as intellectual truth, having in our minds an acceptance of the knowledge of Scripture, but never believing it, never having a changed life, being part of it, having it surround us, but never partaking of the truth ourselves. Lord, many of us spent years in churches hearing the gospel, but not believing it, giving assent to it intellectually, but never having a changed life. As we come today, Lord, we have heard that there is a danger to that. We have heard very clearly of what happens when we do not believe the knowledge that we have heard of Christ. We pray that you would speak to our hearts today, Lord, that none of us would be mere assenters to the knowledge of Christ and to the things of Christ, but we would be partakers, that our hearts would be enlivened and quickened to the things of Christ that our lives would be forever changed if there be people here today, Lord, who have heard the, the things of Christ but not actually believed it, not had a life that was transformed, not actually said, Lord, I humbly come to you. Will you forgive me of my sins? I repent and turn from them. Come and be my Lord and my Savior and be in charge of my life. That they would do that today that your Holy Spirit would move and their eyes would be open and their hearts tender to your call, your call which they cannot resist, your call which is the greatest thing that they will ever know in their life. Lord, come upon us today that we might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We ask in his name. Amen. Our hymn is 559, Come Holy Spirit, Dove Divine. Let's stand as we sing 559.
thy cross, the shame of it, the pain, the Lamb of God for sinners slain. But it is there, in the shedding of that perfect blood, that we find that death passes over us, and that's the eternal death. We are no longer subject to that, for we will have been freed from the chains of sin, that we might know eternal life. Lord, come upon us today as we are here and speak to our hearts that we might know this truth, not just in our minds, but in our very being, that it would be what we live for, not the things of ourselves, but the things of Christ, so that in, it, it permeates all that we say and that we do. Send us out, Lord, that this would be the truth that we live for, the truth that touches all areas of our lives the truth that is clear in all we say and do, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.